0: In November 2016, the nation watched as the 24 hour news cycle filled with a story of a California woman who seemingly vanished while out on a run. Her family and friends described her as a supermom, But when she returned 22 days later, questions persisted until last week when an arrest was made. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines. This is my week off, so naturally I am releasing an episode. I do know what taking a break means, and I don't intend to always be releasing content on my weeks off, but this was a case that I mentioned back in my Q&A last year. I was asked what unsolved case I would like to see solved, and I had two answers. I had the one that I wanted solved for the family's sake, and then I had the one that I wanted solved due to my sheer curiosity. My sheer curiosity case was the disappearance and reappearance of Sherry Papini. The reason I'm so curious about this case was that her story didn't really add up. But on the other hand, she did have injuries when she returned, scarring and disfiguring ones. So would she have really done that to herself for what? A three-week break from being supermom? Well, according to a criminal complaint against her that was just filed, she did do it to herself, though as for the why, we may have to wait until trial for that answer. I tend to not cover cases that are pending trial because I like to wait for the defense side so that I can give you a comprehensive look at things. I make a lot of mistakes as a podcaster, but giving one side of the story particularly the government side, is generally not one of them. But I said back in that December Q&A that I wanted to know more about what happened, and the 55-page affidavit in support of the criminal complaint was just released, and it gives a lot more information as well as what the prosecution says happened. Given that I had a week off and I was spending my time taking notes from the affidavit anyway, let's go ahead and just cover it now. Should this make it to trial and have some bombshell evidence or a really solid defense, I can do a full episode on it then. Before we get into the affidavit specifically, I want to start off with the event that kicked this off so we all start with the same base understanding. So let's start there. On November 2nd, 2016, 34-year-old Sherry Papini texted her husband, Keith, at 10.37 a.m. asking if he would be home for lunch. He said he wouldn't, and that's the last time anyone heard from her that day. When Keith got home from work around 5 p.m., Sherry and their two kids were not there. He then found out that the kids were actually still at daycare. Sherry had not picked them up as she usually did. This was immediately alarming to Keith, so he used the Find My iPhone feature to figure out where Sherry was. It tracked her phone to the intersection of Old Oregon Trail in Sunrise Drive in Redding, California, which was less than a mile from their home. Keith went down to the intersection, and he didn't find Sherry, but he did find her phone with wired earbuds attached. But it didn't look like the headphones had been ripped away or the phone thrown. The wires were loosely wrapped around the phone, and it was lying neatly in the grass like someone had put it there. Keith later said to investigators that he found this strange. In the wires of the earbuds were some long blonde hairs consistent with Sherry's. Keith then contacted the police around 5.50 to report Sherry missing. In talking to the neighbors, they did have witnesses who said they saw Sherry jogging on Sunrise Drive around midday. She was wearing athletic wear and was not carrying anything like a bag. A check of the family's home found that Sherry had not taken anything with her. No one saw or heard her get into a car, whether by force or voluntarily, but this is an area where the houses are set back from the road a bit, and the lots tend to have trees. The national media grabbed onto the story. Sherry was an attractive, petite, blonde supermom who had a picture-perfect family, and she was gone. It was not unlike the Gabby Petito case or the Shanann Watts case as far as publicity around it went. Everyone was talking about this case. A difference with both the Petito and Watts cases was that Sherry's husband, Keith, was not a suspect. People had seen Sherry after Keith went to work and there was no evidence he went home that day. In fact, there was evidence he didn't go home prior to 5 p.m. He also passed a polygraph. Though he did get some criticism online for seeming a little eager to collect money through a GoFundMe, the police had ruled him out within the first week. The family did collect money, both to offer a reward, but they also set up that GoFundMe, and that was meant to cover expenses relating to the search for Sherry. The police did warn the family to be careful of people who would be trying to take advantage of the situation and they said they weren't even sure this was an abduction at that point. For the 22 days Sherry was missing, her family made almost daily appeals through the media. And then on Thanksgiving Day 2016, Sherry returned, showing up about 145 miles south of where she was last seen by neighbors. For those who don't have their 2016 calendars in front of them, Thanksgiving was November 24th. Around 4.30 a.m., a a number of 911 calls came in about a woman in the middle of I-5. Some saw her standing there, and others reported she was running. One of the calls was from a truck driver who pulled over to help her. When the police arrived at the scene, they found Sherry Papini with the truck driver. She was alive, but she was not entirely well. Sherry had a number of injuries, including a brand burned onto her right shoulder. They did not publicly release much information about the injuries at the time, which would turn out really important later in verifying stories. The big holdback was what the brand looked like. We know now, with what has been recently released, that the branding was largely indistinguishable, which if you think about it, doesn't make a lot of sense. The purpose of branding something, or in this case someone, is so that you can distinguish it as belonging to someone. A blob of a brand makes little sense. We will get more into this brand later. An early report was also released saying that Sherry was, quote, heavily battered, and the affidavit gives the list of injuries as a swollen nose, bruises on her face, pelvis, and legs. Sherry also had rashes on her left arm, left thigh, burns on her left forearm, and ligature marks on her wrists and ankles. She had been found with a chain around her waist that one of her arms was bound to, but there were additional bindings on her other wrist and also her ankles. Sherry had her hair roughly chopped off and only weighed 87 pounds, which was about a 12 to 13 pound weight loss in just three weeks. Investigators initially declined to say whether she had been sexually assaulted or not, but the exam did not show signs of it. And Sherry also said she hadn't been abused in that way while being kept captive. What had been made public about Sherry's account of what happened was that she had been kidnapped at gunpoint by two Hispanic women in a dark colored SUV and she was held before one of them decided to release her. She even sat down to provide composite sketches that were released through the media. No motive was ever really explained to the public. There was some speculation that this may have been a human trafficking situation, but experts worked pretty hard to dispel that. This case did fuel a lot of my kid was almost kidnapped at Walmart Facebook posts for a bit. There is a clear fear people have of human trafficking and that people are just being snatched off the street. But the research has shown that human traffickers pick people who won't be reported missing, or if they are, it will be delayed or it won't get a lot of attention. Their horrific work thrives on staying under the radar, so they tend to avoid the national news. The case in the public eye, at least, didn't go far after this. Not a lot was being released about what was happening behind the scenes, but a little digging into Sherry's past by the media did cast more suspicion on her story, even without any official police press releases. One of these things was a MySpace blog-type post from 2007 that was made by an account Using Sherry's maiden name, the post was called Keep Walking, and it talked about how she was a good athlete, but was picked on in school by a group of, quote, Latinos who bullied her because, according to her, she was drug-free, white, and proud of her heritage. She said she fought one of the girls, breaking her nose and splitting her eyebrow. The post ended with, quote, being white is more than just being aware of my skin but of standing behind skinheads who are always around in spirit as well, and having pride for my country, End quote. Posting a racist blog or essay online and then pointing the finger at two Hispanic women with her seemingly implausible kidnapping story definitely raised more suspicions. The next thing uncovered was when the Sacramento Bee obtained an incident report from 2003 That alleged, Sherry accused her mother of abusing her when Sherry was actually inflicting the injuries on herself. Her mother had contacted the police about it, though the family widely criticized the paper's decision to publish this information from a family issue from so long ago. The next bit of information released to the public was that DNA was found on Sherry when she was found. What we knew at the time was that unknown female DNA was found on her body and unknown male DNA was found on her clothing. It did not match her husband. This was more or less the public information that we have been given over the last five years. But now that charges have been laid, we know that there was an active investigation going on behind the scenes that cast a lot more doubt on the abduction theory more than just our collective side-eyeing of Sherry's story. You know the phrase, tip of the iceberg? That's a good representation of what they released publicly versus all of the information they had. So now we are going to delve into the affidavit and what it said. These types of filings are broken into sections, and they're not generally in the order of the best way to tell the story because that's not the point of them. But that is the point of Crime Line, so I'm not going to just walk you through it in order or read it to you. I have diced it up. I've rearranged it. We are going to make this easy to follow and not repetitive. A quick disclaimer. What we are going over is a lot of what the investigation uncovered. However, it has been written up to support an arrest. Everything is cast in the most favorable light to the prosecution. Sherry is innocent until proven guilty. And until this evidence is tested in court, it is all alleged. Let's start with the investigation prior to Sherry being found. The FBI came in early on this investigation, so forensic and digital searches were done quickly. Stored in Sherry's phone, they found two phone numbers that belonged to men, but were listed under women's names in her contacts. Being stored under fake names was a red flag, so both men were investigated. The first man we know about was a lead that had been made public. He lived in Michigan and he had met Sherry when she was out of town for work in 2011 while she was married to Keith. He said they spent the weekend together and the affidavit isn't more explicit about what this weekend entailed. But he did say they stayed in contact through texting over the next few years. He described the texts as flirtatious and he had a business trip to California planned for November 2016, and the two made plans to meet up. Investigators traveled to his home in Michigan to interview him and, frankly, to see if Sherry was there. He told them everything that had happened between the two of them, including that he didn't end up seeing Sherry while he was in California. They were able to verify this and that he had no involvement in her disappearance. The second man was someone Sherry knew from her late teens. They met at a youth program and dated for several years. He told the police that Sherry had made up stories to get attention back then and accused multiple people in her family of abuse and then accused him of abuse after their breakup. The affidavit doesn't give any more information about their interactions or why he was in her phone under a fake name all these years later. The investigators also spoke with someone from the youth program where Sherry and the second man met, and that person characterized Sherry much in the same way. Like the incident report the Sacramento Bee reported on, the accusations of Sherry being an attention seeker who accused everyone of abuse were from 15 years before she went missing. She could have grown and matured a lot during that time. This did show the start of a pattern of behavior, but the question was, did that pattern continue? The police also spoke with Sherry's first husband, a man named David, who brought some of these accusations a little closer in the timeline. They were married around 2006 and their marriage was pretty brief. According to what Keith had told the police, Sherry only married David because she needed medical insurance, to cover issues with a heart murmur, but according to David, they were dating and got married shortly before he deployed with the military because she needed health insurance, but said it was to cover something stemming from having made regular egg donations. Aside from visiting David while he was in Japan, Sherry and David were hardly together during their marriage, and they didn't live together, in spite of Sherry's mother having told the police that Sherry traveled the world with David. Is it possible Sherry exaggerated the one trip to Japan into more than it was? I mean, that's a little bit of speculation. But when I read the affidavit, that's the foundation I feel like they are laying, that Sherry exaggerated or lied about things. It's the same reason they listed the two explanations she gave for needing medical insurance. When David returned to the States from this deployment, Sherry told him she wanted a divorce because she had met another man. David told the police that Sherry told him during their marriage that her family did abuse her while she was growing up, but that he later heard Sherry had a reputation for lying frequently. So, like I said, this moves up these abuse accusations against her family from 15 years in the past to nine years before she went missing. In speaking with some of Sherry's friends, the investigators confirmed this even more. The friends said Sherry would make up lies about abuse, especially when she was younger. I do want to point out that the affidavit seems to take it for granted that the accusations she made against her family were lies, but they don't give any evidence to back that up. And this is what I mean when I say these are facts presented in the light most favorable to the prosecution. They're trying to show a pattern of accusing people of physical abuse, and we'll get into why they're laying that groundwork later. It'll be pretty obvious when I get there. But we don't know that these are lies. Anyway, after Sherry was picked up by the truck driver and taken to the hospital, her clothing was taken from her for a DNA examination. It had been publicly released, like I said, that they found that male DNA profile on her clothes. In the affidavit, we learned that it was specifically in her underwear and on a spot on her sweatpants, but they could not tell the source, like if it was sperm or something else. They uploaded the DNA to CODIS to see if a match was ever entered. The DNA would turn out to be the key to breaking this case, but this is going to take some time. In the meantime, the kidnapping was still being investigated, and now they had a complaining witness who they could interview. They tried to talk to Sherry while she was at the hospital and also as she was transported by ambulance to a second medical center, but Sherry refused to talk to the police. Approaching this situation as having a traumatized witness, they handed a tape recorder to her husband, Keith, and had him at her side asking her what happened while they stood off to the side, and that's where we get Sherry's story. Sherry said the reason she was hesitant to talk to the police about this was because her abductors told her that the, quote, buyer was a cop. She was scared of the police because she didn't know who she could trust. But her husband coaxed her to tell him what happened. Sherry said that she was out running when a dark-colored SUV with tinted windows passed her and then backed up. A woman said... Can you help me? Or something along those lines. Sherry went up to the SUV and the woman opened the door a little and flashed a small revolver at Sherry. She told Sherry to put her phone down and said something like, we don't want to hurt you. We don't want to kill you. Sherry placed her phone in the grass. She seemed fuzzy on how she ended up in the SUV, if she got in on her own or if they forced her. Sherry described the two women in the SUV as Hispanic women, but they had something over their faces like a bandana or a mask, so she didn't get a good look at them. It does seem odd that someone pulled over to ask for assistance while their face was covered pre-2020 pandemic, and that didn't alarm Sherry at all, but we're going to go with this for now. Sherry said the woman covered her head, and Keith asked Sherry if they did that right away, and she said she couldn't remember. She said she thought she may have been tased. She said that while in the back of the SUV, she struggled to stay conscious during the ride. Pushed on how long the drive was, or if it was bumpy or going uphill or possibly downhill, Sherry couldn't remember. But she did remember that the vehicle smelled bad. Sherry said she woke up in a closet off of a room. She was in different clothes than she had been wearing on her run, and she did not know what happened to her original clothing. She said she didn't remember being changed, so it may have happened while she was unconscious. She said the only piece of clothing that was originally hers that she kept was her underwear. She said they kept her in the small room and she was given a bucket with cat litter at the bottom as a toilet. She was chained to a pole in the closet by a waist restraint and it wasn't long enough to reach the door, but she could reach a mattress. She would have her blanket taken away if she made any noise and she was only fed once a day, usually something like rice or tortillas or cream of wheat and sometimes apples. She said sometimes they would give her additional food in exchange for compliance. She did say she wasn't sexually assaulted, so this compliance was more behavioral. Sherry said that in addition to telling her that the person buying her was in law enforcement, they read her articles that said she ran away on her own. They made her believe no one would be looking for her. Sherry said she could hear her captors playing music loudly, music she called, and I quote, that really annoying Mexican music. She said she did try to escape. The first time she tried to escape, they caught her, tied her to a table, and branded her on her shoulder. She said that they told her she had to be branded because that's what her buyer liked. She said she didn't know his name or if they had said it because the women mostly spoke Spanish, and she didn't know much more than a few words of the language. Yet she also told the police a few things that they talked about, and according to the affidavit, this included medicine, traffic cameras, a delivery date, gambling, and hurling insults at her in Spanish. So it seems Sherry's understanding of Spanish vocabulary was rather eclectic. Sherry said she didn't remember a lot about being released, just that the younger abductor and the older one were fighting, and she thought the younger one was saying that Sherry needed medicine. She then heard a loud bang like a gunshot, and the younger woman left. Sherry was alone and she fell asleep, only to be wakened by the younger woman later, a pillowcase put over her head, and then she was put into a vehicle. The woman drove a while and then, before ordering Sherry out of the vehicle, clipped one of the restraints from one of her arms so she could move it. Once Sherry was out of the car, the woman sped off. Sherry pulled the pillowcase off of her head and ran to a church and banged on the door. No one was there, so she went out to the highway to try to flag someone down. That's when the 911 calls came in. Security cameras did catch some of this, like Sherry banging on the church door. Sherry was shown a variety of makes and models of SUVs, but none of them seemed to match the vehicle she was in. Sherry was asked about sights and smells and sounds that might help figure out where she had been held. She said it was cold and rainy, and she remembered there being a fireplace because she could smell it. She heard birds, but that was about it because the loud music they played drowned out most everything else. Based on what she could remember, investigators believed she had been held in the mountains, so they focused on areas of higher altitude. Sherry was again questioned at her home a few days later, and she gave some more details. They did want to talk to her by herself, but she insisted her husband stay with her. In this interview, they had Sherry start back on the day of her kidnapping, but before the actual event. What did she do that day? Sherry said she did her usual routine of taking the kids to daycare and then went home to do some house cleaning and wrapped a Christmas present for her husband. She then texted Keith about coming home for lunch, as was reported in the media, but the actual message she sent was a little racier than what was reported. She actually suggested he come home for sex on his lunch break. When Keith couldn't make it home, Sherry said she decided to go out for a run. This wasn't something that she had been doing recently because she had a breast augmentation surgery, so she had to stop running for a while while she healed. But this is pretty important because if she was targeted, someone probably watched her habits, This run wasn't something she had been doing every day because of the surgery. She was training for a 5K, so she said she opened up the app on her phone that was helping her build back up to running that far. She was listening to a certain song on loop because it was a good pacekeeper, and that song was actually playing on her phone when her husband found it. Sherry gave much of the same information about the abduction, and she did mention this time that her hip started hurting while she was lying in the vehicle. She was asked how long it generally took for her hip to start hurting when she was lying in one position, and she said around 40 minutes based on a recent experience where she laid down watching TV. These little questions seem unimportant, but they are the ones that are getting a better idea of how long she was in the SUV. Sherry said that her wrists were bound by zip ties behind her back when she was abducted and that she chewed them enough to break them while she was in the closet, but she didn't explain how she got her wrists in front of her in order to do this. She also added that the two women came in the room pretty much any time she made noise, so they were guarding her 24-7. Sherry talked about her first escape attempt, pulling a board off of the window. She said that they caught her and they struck her. In her first statement, she said this is when she was branded, and when she was asked about this again, she said no, she was actually branded at a different time, and that was a punishment for making too much noise. Asked about this discrepancy, Sherry asked if being tased would mess with someone's memory. She was told it would not have, and the affidavit notes at this point that she never brought up being tased again. Sherry was asked about details with this branding, and she said she couldn't remember a lot because of both the pain from the branding, but also lying on her stomach and the weight of her body on her still-healing breast surgery. She thought it was the older woman who branded her and that the tool used was small, like the size of a screwdriver. She speculated that it may have been a crafting tool. In this statement, Sherry said she passed the time by sleeping a lot and by exercising. She stayed quiet while exercising by pulling the chain tight so it wouldn't rattle. She also mentioned the bucket toilet, which in some statements she called a trash can, and this time she added that they didn't have kitty litter in it to begin with, but they added it due to her suggestion. Sherry also said they did allow her to shower twice under guard while she was being held, and the first shower hurt due to her injuries and burns. During the shower, she did grab something and tried to hit the younger abductor. She wasn't successful in overpowering her, and she said when she took her second shower, The bathroom was bare, no mirror, no towel rack, nothing, nothing she could grab to defend herself or attack anybody with. As for her hair being cut, Sherry said she couldn't remember the details, but that she did something that made noise, which sent the captors into the room. She dropped on all fours, which was something she started doing because they would tell her not to look at them. One of them grabbed her, cut her ponytail off, and said she was going to send it to Sherry's mother. Sherry was also asked about the MySpace post I mentioned before about standing behind skinheads. Sherry said she could not remember if she had a MySpace account, and she believed that someone else had made the post under her name. She was aware of the post prior to going missing, and she even looked into how to get it removed. Sherry was next interviewed by an FBI forensic interviewer in early March 2017, four months after the abduction. This was the first time she had an interview without Keith with her. Sherry again expressed distrust of law enforcement because she said she still wasn't sure that a cop wasn't behind it. She looked at the floor for most of this interview. Sherry told the beginning story pretty much the same, and when she got to the zip ties, She was asked how she got them from behind her to in front of her so that she could chew her way free, and she said she didn't remember. There was an inconsistency in this statement to her older statements when she was asked about the abductors reading her articles about how no one was looking for her because they thought she ran away voluntarily. Sherry now said that they didn't read the articles, but rather just told her about the articles, and they told her about these at the time they cut her hair. Over the next year or two, Keith and Sherry would contact the FBI a few times with some more things Sherry would remember, like what a carpet looked like and also a better description of the gun. They would also provide photo examples of things Sherry remembered, like the type of table she was on when she was branded and the type of instrument she thought was used to make the burn marks on her forearm. Keith also sat down with Sherry and they essentially sketched out a floor plan of the space she had been kept in. The FBI sat down with her and created the composite sketches and showed her mugshots of people who resembled them. The more they talked to Sherry, though, the more contradictions in her story would pop up. They tended to be small things, like saying that it was the older woman who told her the cop was the buyer and then switching it to saying it was the younger one. But there were things she was super consistent on, like the bar in the closet she was chained to and a crack in the bathroom tile and the boards on the windows. None of the revelations sent in by Keith and Sherry led to the identity of the people who allegedly kidnapped her or to the source of the DNA. So in September of 2019, the investigators decided to pursue familial DNA to find the source of the male DNA on Sherry's clothing. This was run, and in March 2020, they found a man who was a potential relative of the source of the DNA. This man had two living sons, one of whom just happened to be one of Sherry's ex-boyfriends. While you may see his name in the media, it has not currently been officially released, so I'm just going to call him John. In June 2020, the FBI took John's trash from outside of his home and found a green tea bottle. They sent that in for DNA, and it was a match to the unknown male DNA profile. In July 2020, investigators looked at John's brother's social media accounts. They saw a photograph from John's apartment, and in the picture was a coffee table, very similar to the one Sherry described in August 2017. This description was of the table she said she was branded on. With this information, investigators interviewed John on August 10th, 2020, and this is when it all came crashing down. John came clean. He said he planned to if the police ever showed up at his doorstep, but he had opted not to go to the police himself. John admitted that he was with Sherry while she was supposedly kidnapped and held captive. John said he and Sherry had known each other since they were teenagers, and they had even been engaged at one point. They had been out of contact for years until he found a bunch of old photos and mementos from their time together. So he put it together in a package and mailed it to Sherry's parents to give to her. This was in 2015, and Sherry reached out to him shortly after this. In talking to John, Sherry told him that her marriage was abusive. She claimed that Keith would beat her and rape her, and though she filed police reports, nothing had been done about it. For the record, there is no evidence she ever went to the police to report abuse. But I think we can now see why this affidavit was making a background case for false accusations of abuse. Eventually, Sherry told John that she was making a plan to leave Keith. Though John and Sherry initially used their regular phones to talk, they both eventually got prepaid burner phones for Sherry's safety. John said the plan was Sherry's idea and he was just helping her, but he did admit the plan wasn't very well thought out because there was a plan to escape, but as far as he knew, there wasn't really a plan for what came next, except that Sherry would stay at his apartment for a while. On November 2nd, John got up early and drove the eight to nine hour drive from his home in Southern California to Redding. He had his friend rent a car for him so the car could not be traced back to him, even if it was spotted. He waited in town until Sherry contacted him to say that it was time to meet up. Sherry sent him a text saying where to pick her up, and he remembered it was a street with the name Old in it. He saw Sherry walking as he drove, so he pulled over and she got into the back seat where she laid down. They then drove straight to his home in Costa Mesa, stopping for gas and coffee. He said that she did express some concern for her kids, but that was about all. She slept most of the drive. John said that while at his home, Sherry stayed inside the whole time, though she did send him out to buy her some clothes. He got her sweats, socks, and some t-shirts from a nearby department store. He said he didn't buy her a lot of clothes, and it was really just generic stuff. John said he then went about life as normal while Sherry laid low at his house. He was sleeping on the couch, and she took the bedroom that was the least visible from the road. He said that they really did just hang out and that they were not intimate during this time. Aside from doing some cleaning, Sherry mostly spent time in the bedroom with the door shut, alone, and he wasn't even home that much because he did work full time. John also wasn't aware of all the hoopla around Sherry's disappearance because he didn't own a TV. He did believe Sherry may have known what was going on because he would see her reading the news on the prepaid phone that she still had with her. When investigators walked through John's apartment, they realized that the floor plan Sherry and Keith had drawn was John's place. The closet in the room she stayed in was pretty much identical in the details. The window in the bedroom was similar. Even the crack in the bathroom tile matched a detail that Sherry gave. The investigators asked John specifically about the window in that room and if Sherry had done anything to it. In her prior statements, she said she was kept in a room with a boarded up window and that she had tried to pry the boards free to escape. This detail was not in the media. John said that Sherry asked him to board up the windows. He used particle board. And his understanding was that she was hiding out from this abusive husband and just didn't want anyone to see her from the outside. So investigators believed that the consistent parts in Sherry's story, like the layout of the space she was in, were true details that were woven into a story that was otherwise fabricated. But we can't ignore that Sherry showed back up, underweight, and with significant injuries. Weight loss takes some time, and some of the injuries were healing, so it wasn't like she just did all of this the day before she went home because she needed an excuse for leaving her family. And she had branding on her shoulder. How did she reach around and do that? John told investigators that this was, in fact, all self inflicted, or at least mostly. He said Sherry began eating very small portions the entire time, saying she wanted to lose weight. She had cut her own hair early on, and then a few days before returning to Reading, she began injuring herself. John said he didn't put his hands on her, but he did help her with some of her injuries, like when she wanted him to hit a puck into her leg. He said he did it, but he did say he did it lately. He admitted he was the one who branded her, but said it was at her request. He bought a wood-burning kit at Hobby Lobby that letters snapped onto. He couldn't remember what Sherry wanted the brand to say, but whatever it was was meaningful to her. What he's describing to me sounds a lot more like body modification, like getting a tattoo, and a lot less like assault. All of the things John said about Sherry's condition was incredibly relevant because the specifics of her injury had not been made public. The brand was never described as being a word or a phrase, and I think most people, including myself, assumed... It was like a cattle brand, which is just one symbol pressed one time, not a phrase that was made up of individual letters. If John knew this, he had to have seen the injuries or been there, like he said, when they were inflicted. He even knew Sherry had a rash, which he said he bought cream for, and they thought it was an allergic reaction to some cleaning product. The rash had never been made public. John told the investigators that shortly before Thanksgiving, Sherry said she missed her kids and wanted to go home. So she bagged up everything that was hers at his apartment and threw the bag in the dumpster. John then had his friend rent him another car and he drove her to where he left her on the side of the road where she was then found. John said Sherry used items she had in a bag to bind herself before she got out of the car. She also had her prepaid phone with her, which she chucked out the window along the drive. After Sherry reappeared, telling everyone she had been kidnapped, John kept quiet out of fear that he would be arrested for it. But like I said, he told himself he would cooperate with the police should they show up on his doorstep, which they did. John said at no point were any women involved in this other than Sherry, and he did not know anyone who looked like the composite sketches. Now, none of John's story actually proves Sherry did this to herself, or that Sherry went with him willingly. That's just what he says happened. What they can prove based on his statements was that he was involved, whether this was a runaway situation or an abduction, because he knew too much for him not to have been involved. But he could have reframed everything to look like Sherry ran away when he had actually lured her and held her against her will. But there are a few reasons they don't believe John abducted her. For one, he had someone back up his story. John had told his cousin prior to Sherry's disappearance that he was helping her get away from an abusive husband. The cousin helped run interference on John's apartment keeping even the maintenance man out while Sherry was there. The cousin said he saw her twice during this time. One time she was looking out the window, and the second time he had actually gone into the apartment and Sherry was in the living room. When she saw him, she ran into the bedroom. Another big reason that they believe John's story is that they confronted Sherry with it, and she straight up said he wasn't involved. This was her chance to throw him under the bus or turn him in if he was guilty of kidnapping, but she didn't. So let's get into that interview in more detail because it's the basis of the first charge against Sherry. Days after speaking with John, an FBI agent and a Shasta County detective interviewed Sherry with her husband present. They opened by telling her that they wanted the truth and it was a crime to lie to a federal officer and asked her if she understood that. She indicated she did. So they asked her about the abduction again, and she continued with her original story. They then showed Sherry a picture of a coffee table that she gave them, saying it was similar to the one that she was on when she was branded. She said she remembered it. So then they showed her a picture of John's coffee table, which was similar. She said she couldn't identify it for sure because it had been too long. At this point, it had been nearly four years. They then showed her photos of John's apartment and pointed out all the ways it matched the place she said she was held. She said it was a little different, but admitted it was pretty similar. The bedroom, the window, the bathroom, the closet, all similar, but she said it was a little different. They told her that the picture she was looking at right then was the place they'd learned she had been at. And they even spoke with the family who knew she was there. Sherry said, oh my God. They then asked if she wanted her husband to leave the room and she asked if she could speak to Keith in private first. The investigators agreed to this. After giving the couple a little time alone, the investigators went back into the interview room and asked Sherry if she wanted Keith there as they proceeded. Sherry didn't answer, so they picked up where they left off and told Sherry that the only way to control things would be to talk to them. Sherry's answer was, quote, I know, I don't want you to find her. She's the reason that I get to see my children every day, end quote. Sherry didn't want her abductor who released her to get in trouble. They responded that they weren't going to find this woman because Sherry hadn't been kidnapped and they knew the DNA belonged to John. Not only that, but that she had asked John to come get her. Sherry denied it and she said there was no way John was behind this because they were friends. He wouldn't have done this to her. She was sticking to the abduction angle, even as they told her they didn't believe it. The investigators asked her straight out if she asked John to pick her up and she said no. They then asked her when she last spoke to John and she said she hadn't talked to him since she lived in Southern California and not since getting married to Keith. The phone records of both her regular phone and the burner phones indicated this was a lie. And that's exactly what they told her before reminding her once again that it was a crime to lie to federal agents. At some point, Keith left the room, and that's when Sherry admitted that she did talk to John while married, and she talked to other men as well, saying that it was a mistake and that she shouldn't have done it. But she kept insisting that she had been kidnapped. About a month after this interview, someone used a phone number registered to Sherry's parents' business to call John four times in the same day. A few days later, the same number called him twice. Then a month after that, a number registered to Sherry's home called him four times in one day. Sherry, or someone with access to the same phones she had access to, really seemed to want to talk to John. At this point, the affidavit drops the thread of John and moves on to the issue of the GoFundMe, which has no direct charges laid due to it, but it may be offered up as evidence of a pattern of misusing money. This GoFundMe was set up to aid in search efforts. At the time Sherry was found, there was about $49,000 in it, and it was paid into a bank account that Keith controlled. On December 6th, 2016, Keith wrote a check from that account for over $31,000 to himself and deposited it into his personal bank account. He then wrote an $1,100 check to Sherry that she deposited into her personal account. Around $11,000 total was used by them to pay down credit cards. The rest appears to have been used on personal expenses. This wasn't the only money Sherry benefited from due to her alleged abduction, and the second source is where the second charge Sherry is facing comes from. She applied for funds through the California Victim Compensation Fund. On the application, Sherry had to indicate what the funds were for, and she checked the boxes for medical and or dental expenses, moving or relocation expenses, mental health treatment, and home security improvements. Most of the payments she got were actually paid to her therapist, but there was also $1,000 for blinds for her home for better security. In total from 2017 through 2021, over $30,000 was paid out for a crime the authorities are now saying never happened. Sherry was arrested on March 3, 2022, and charged with two counts. One, making false statements to a federal law enforcement officer, and that is for lying to the FBI in August 2020 when she was confronted with the evidence she was at John's house. The second charge was mail fraud because the payments she received from this compensation fund, whether directly through reimbursement or having the bill paid for her, like with therapy, These were fraudulent, and they were sent through the mail. The first charge has a maximum of five years in prison, and the second has a maximum of 20 years, but there are so many variables in sentencing, including the fact she has no prior charges, that it's hard to even speculate on what time she's realistically facing if found guilty. While her family did not make a statement directly on the charges, they did criticize the behavior of investigators, including how they arrested Sherry in front of her children. They said it was unnecessary, and she would have made arrangements to turn herself in. She had cooperated all along, and they had no reason to believe she wouldn't continue. The family did hire a PR firm, so I think we can expect all statements to have been carefully weighed. Sherry was initially held over the weekend, having been deemed a flight risk. There is a hearing on Tuesday, March 8th, and she may be released then. I'm recording this on the 6th, so if you're listening to this in the future, you know more than me on how that turned out. I'm looking forward to seeing the prosecution's case in full, as well as the defense. This is the federal case, though, and let's talk statistics. 98% of all federal cases are resolved through plea deals, and they don't go to trial, so we may never get it that far. But if it does go to trial, I am going to be watching for the motive they are going to present. Are they going to say that Sherry ran away from her life and then regretted it, so she started concocting a story? Or are they going to allege she ran away the entire time planning to fake a kidnapping for attention? Or are they going to present a financial motive? After all, the GoFundMe money went right into her and her husband's bank accounts. I wonder if she realized when she applied for the victim compensation fund that so little of it would be paid directly to her and that it would mostly go right to the therapist. And speaking of the therapist, that would be an interesting source of information, if not for a little thing we call privacy laws. There is a possibility we hear some psychiatric testimony if this does go to trial or possibly with sentencing if Sherry is convicted but we aren't quite there yet. I will keep you posted on any major developments but for the smaller ones I'll probably just put those on social media. I tend to be on Twitter and Facebook the most. So search for Crime Lines there for updates on this case and whatever else I post and I will be back next week with a regular full episode but if you can't wait I did just release a 55-minute episode on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash crimelines if you want more content. And I'm going to wrap this up. I didn't write a conclusion. I researched, wrote, rewrote, recorded, and now I have to go edit it all on a Sunday. And I just didn't write a conclusion. And my brain is done, so I can't think of one. So anyway, back next week. See you on social media. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok.